The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture today comes from Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Please read with me. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do not and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You have this, yet you have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. And moving on this week to chapter 2. Um, not too long ago, I was looking for a late night snack. It's the kind of thing I enjoy. I know that you find that hard to believe based upon my strapping physique. Uh, however, I uh, was looking through the pantry and I happened upon some Ritz crackers. Perfect. Or so I thought. The next day, I received a call from my bride to inquire. She wanted to know what happened to said crackers because she needed them for a recipe that she was planning to make that evening. My bad. There was much repenting. Uh, the, the, the deal is, is that I missed the purpose of those crackers because I ignored who they were for. Holly had bought them to be one ingredient in a family meal, but I had treated them like a personal snack. And here's the deal, Shades. We often get the purpose of things wrong when we ignore who they are for. Such is all too often the case with the book of Revelation. I fear that one of the main or first interpretive blunders we make, one of, one of the reasons we have such a hard time approaching and understanding this book is because we forget who it's for. Just like Holly, the purchaser of the crackers, had an intended purpose for them, so also John, the author of Revelation, has an intended audience that we too often ignore. We saw last week who that audience is. John is writing to seven churches in Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And you'd think we'd get that point not only because he tells it to us in chapter 1, but because the next two chapters, all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3, contain nothing but individualized messages for those churches. I say messages instead of letters. A lot of people call them the seven letters. Revelation is one letter. It's got seven individualized messages up front, but it's one letter to all of those churches, to the whole churches we'll see in just a moment. The, the irony here is that all too often... We approach chapters 2 and 3 as if that's all that was meant for those first seven churches. That part was for them back then, but the rest of the book, that's for us in the, in the future. 
And we treat revelation like it is a personal spiritual snack. It's just for me. Figure it out on my own. We treat it like that instead of what it actually is, a meal for the church. This book is meant, not just Revelation, but this book, this book is meant for the church, for the people of God. You, you can see that clear. You can see that the whole book of Revelation is meant for these seven churches when you just look at those messages in chapter two and three. For instance, every single one of these seven messages, it will begin with a description of Christ that comes from chapter one. Every single one of these seven messages, it will conclude with a promise that's connected to the final chapters of the book, chapter 21 and 22. It, if the intro of these seven messages is connected to the intro of the book, and the conclusion of these seven messages is connected to the conclusion of the book, don't you think that the body of these seven messages will be connected to the body of the book? And they are. This whole book is for the whole church. And not just these original seven in Asia Minor Shades. Yes, it was first written to them, and we need to interpret it first how they would have heard it before we apply it to us. But we must apply it to us. Because it's for us too. Remember, we've already talked about this a few times. This is why John writes to seven churches. Seven is a symbolic number in Revelation. It stands for completeness or totality. John, by writing to seven specific churches, is signaling, symboling that he is writing to the entire church throughout the world and throughout time. He writes to us. Even these seven personalized messages in chapters two and three are meant for us. I know that because every last one of them ends with these words. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yes, you might be listening to an individualized message for Ephesus or Sardis or Philadelphia, but it's for you too, Smyrna. It's for you too, Pergamum. And it's for you too, Shades. These messages are meant for us, and we need them. I mean, before we even see any of the content, like even the structure of these messages reveals our need for them. What, what do I mean by that? I want to give you the overarching structure of all seven before we dive into the first one this week. And that structure indicates that we need them. What do I mean? I told you last week that the order of these letters is based on geography. And that's true. The book of Revelation traveled from the island of Patmos to Asia Minor. It had gone to Ephesus first, and then it basically would make a loop around Asia Minor to all of these cities. They are in geographical order, but there's more than that going on. John is a brilliant writer, and there is a thematic order to these messages as well. The, they form what we call a chiasm. It comes from the Greek letter chi, which makes an X. And basically, I... A chiasm, hang with me for a sec, a chiasm is a literary structure where the outermost elements, what's said first and what's said last, they line up, they match. And then if you take a step in, those things match. And a step in, those things match until you get to the emphasized middle. That's what chiasms normally do. They normally emphasize what's in the, in the middle. Well, our outer messages 
Ephesus first, Laodicea last. Our outer messages are to the congregations in the worst condition. They receive the worst threats of judgment. They're in the worst condition, but they think they're the best. They match. We take one step in to Smyrna and Philadelphia, and these are the congregations who actually are doing best. They're the only two churches who don't receive any criticism from Christ. I mean, think about that. If you think the church is in a bad spot today, just remember first century, five out of seven got criticism from the Lord Jesus. The church has always been in need of Christ. But these two, Smyrna and Philadelphia, no criticism. They're doing good, even though they actually look like they're doing the worst. They're physically weak and impoverished. And then when we get to the three in the middle, we've got kind of this mixed congregation going on. Outside, worst. Next to, best. In the middle, is mixed. Some people are doing good. Some are struggling with false teaching that leads to idolatry and immorality. That's the heart of our chiasm. So, this must be what's being emphasized, right? The fight to persevere amidst idolatry, persevere against idolatry, persevere against immorality. That must be what's at the heart of the book of Revelation. Now, that fight is at the heart of the book, but... I don't think that's all this chiastic structure is emphasizing for us. I I don't think it's just emphasizing the middle. We take one step out from that to those churches that are persevering well. They're suffering. They're struggling, physically weak, impoverished. I, I think the structure is showing us that even if we are persevering well, like Philadelphia and Smyrna, suffering will try to push us towards giving up and giving in. There are easier paths to follow than to follow Christ. Suffering pushes us towards idolatry. There are easier ways to live than to live for Christ. Suffering pushes us towards immorality. And even if we take one more step out and we think we are the furthest away, we're doing the best in our opinion, we're the furthest away from idolatry and immorality. Like Ephesus and Laodicea. Even if we think that we may be tangled up in sin so subtle that we don't even see them and they're about to kill us. Shades, do you see how the very structure of these messages reveals our need for them? Whether we are tangled up in the heart of sin, whether we're suffering and thinking about giving in, or whether we think we are good when we are not. These messages are designed to shake and wake all of us. That's what the book of Revelation does. We're going to talk about that more in the coming weeks of how it does it, but that's why it even uses all the symbolic language that it does. It wants to shake and to wake us, wake us to the reality of our situation. These seven messages, they're designed, yes, to comfort. We will get words of comfort, but we will also get words of conviction. They're designed to challenge us. They're designed to call us. We need them all. And this morning, we begin with the one that perhaps we need the most. The letter, it's the one that I think I need the most. It's the letter to the church at Ephesus. And I say that we may need this one the most, we need them all, but we may need this one the most, because Ephesus, Ephesus is kind of like my son Solomon from this past week. My son Solomon this past week, he, uh, 
we have, a, we have bay windows in our front dining room area, and he, on the lowest window, pushed one of the panes of glass out. Like, just out of the window, and it, it, it broke. He was quite proud of himself. He didn't think he'd broken anything. He thought he had improved it. It was like having a porthole in the house. He could stick his head out, feel the breeze blow outside. He could just throw stuff out at will that he wanted to, and he did. Even once I had taped plastic over it, he ripped it off. Like, how dare I? Why would I want to fix a situation that's not broken? He didn't know that anything was even wrong. And neither did Ephesus. They didn't know that anything was wrong. Were it not for the message to them in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, they might have ignored the entire message of Revelation. We're good. And I think were it not for this letter, this message to Ephesus, we might ignore the entire book of Revelation as well. I mean, this is a book about persevering and faithfulness to Christ. Not giving in to idolatry or immorality. How quickly might we with Ephesus say, check, we're good on all that. We hold on to Christ. No idolatry here. We live moral lives compared to the rest of our culture at least. No immorality here. And and this is why I think chapter 2 begins with Ephesus. Not just because they were first on the map, but because they were the, in, they were the first place that needed a wake-up call, lest they and we ignore the rest of this book as if we don't need it. Shades. Christ, who is powerfully present in their midst, in the midst of Ephesus, is powerfully present in our midst. And he, through this message, is about to show us the greatest thing that we need. He's going to show us the true call that is at the heart of the book of Revelation. Let's see what we need together. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Message to Ephesus begins by connecting us back to the end of chapter 1. If you remember from last week, chapter 1, the Apostle John had just had this incredible vision of the ruling and the reigning Christ. And in every single message to every church in these next few chapters, Christ is going to open up by describing himself with something that comes from that vision in chapter 1 or for some of the names he's called in chapter 1. And right here, he describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven lampstands. If you just look back up, one verse, chapter 1 and verse 20, we read this. Those seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Lampstands, we talked about this a little bit last week. Lampstands... Uh, that were in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, they, they had long come to be recognized as a symbol for the people of God. Uh, well before the Star of David ever stood for Israel, the menorah did, the, the candelabra, the seven-branch candelabra. It was a long-recognized symbol for the people of God who were supposed to shine as a light into this dark world. And Jesus says, that's what my churches are. 
Wherever they're located, they are lampstands shining forth the light of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That is the plan of God and the purpose of God for his church. And that's why he writes to Ephesus. Because the light of their lamp is not shining. And they don't even know it. He writes to them via their angel, we are told, the seven stars. In Christ's right hand from that vision, his, his hand of power, his hand of sovereignty and control, uh, these seven stars represent the seven angels of these seven churches. Now, there have been many guesses as to who these angels are. Some think that they stand for church leadership, like elders or pastors, and that's who the letter is being sent to. I've even actually taught that here before. Uh, some think that they represent uh, the churches, or, uh, like, like they, they're representatives of the churches uh, in heaven, or some think that they're spiritual personifications of, of the churches. Shades, I'm here to tell you that after a lot of in-depth study, my crazy theory is that these angels are angels. The entire book of Revelation, other than right here, it's never disputed. If it uses the Greek word angelos, it is only referring to angels, and I think that's what it's referring to here. What does it mean that each church has its own angel? I got no idea, and I think that anyone that tries to say much more than that is on really shaky ground. At the very least, at the very least, I think this aims to help these churches in us see that there is a reality that is unseen. We are a part of more than what we can see. We are part of a reality that goes beyond us. When the Apostle Paul wrote to these Christians in Ephesus, he reminded them of this. He said this in Ephesians 6 and verse 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I think that Revelation reminds us that we don't fight that battle alone. Ephesus is reminded that they don't fight this battle alone, not only because Christ addresses his message to them through their angel, but they're also reminded they don't fight this battle alone because of how Christ identifies himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the golden lampstands. Christ is going to introduce himself in unique ways that have unique applications to each of these seven churches. And while we, we don't yet fully know while he, why he introduces himself like this to Ephesus, at the very least, we can say he's reminding them of the unseen reality, that he is powerfully present with them. He holds even the stars, his angels, command of all things, spiritual, seen or not, in his right hand of sovereign power, and he walks amongst his churches. He's powerful, and he is present with them. He's present. It's like he's walking through, just like a priest would walk among the lampstands in the temple. He's walking through, tending to them, inspecting them. He sees. He knows. He knows Ephesus even better than they know themselves. And that's going to cause him to commend them, to condemn their sin, and to call them back. To himself. And in doing those three things, commending, condemning, 
calling. In doing those three things, Christ reveals to Ephesus and to us the greatest thing we need. The true call at the heart of the book of Revelation. This church that may be far from committing idolatry and immorality, but they are also far from Christ. And they need to see why. So do we. Let's see what Christ commends, condemns, and let's see his call. Number one, Christ commends enduring orthodoxy. Christ commends enduring orthodoxy. Look at verses two and three. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Ephesus has worked hard at wearying toil, the opening of that verse says. But, very close of verse 3 it says they have not grown weary same root word here you've worked hard at wearying toil but you've not grown weary these verses tell us that they cannot bear with those who are evil or false apostles no they bear up same root word here they bear up for the name of jesus they have endured in orthodoxy orthodoxy fancy word simply means right belief Believing what is true in accordance with Scripture. Ephesus has endured in right belief in the truth of the gospel. They haven't let evil teachers twist it. They haven't let false apostles pervert it. They test their teachers. They protect the truth. And this would have to be a very tiresome task in a place like Ephesus. This would... This was the largest metropolitan city in Asia Minor, and it thrived on a business of religion. Uh, Ephesus was known as Neokaros. That that literally means temple sweeper. It was a high honor. Basically, what it meant is that you had been granted permission by the empire to build a temple to the emperor for emperor worship. And they had one to Domitian, the ruling emperor, a place where he could be worshipped. They prided themselves on this. But that's not all. Not only was it a Neocaros, a place of the imperial cult, but Ephesus itself was actually saturated with the occult, with magical demonic practices. Just go back and read Acts 19 when Paul goes to Ephesus and he preaches the gospel. You'll read there about people who come out of those occult backgrounds and they come to faith and they actually burn their old books of of magic. They burn 50,000 silver pieces worth. That's roughly $6 million. That's insane. This place was, what kind of place can hold $6 million worth of occult books? We're steeped in the occult, but that's not all. Imperial worship, occult, but above all else, Ephesus prided itself on being home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis, fertility goddess. It was, a, it was a massive complex. Look it up. It's a 
It's a massive complex surrounded by a walled garden filled with tree shrines. The the main temple itself was built on an ancient tree shrine. People worshipped trees and flocked to them. They also worshipped Artemis there. At the center of the complex in her actual temple proper, the goddess herself stood. This, uh, This place, it attracted tourists flocking. It attracted, not just tourists, it attracted all kinds of people, especially the worst kinds, because the temple area that we just talked about, it also served as a place that criminals could seek asylum from the punishment of their crimes. They would flock there for safety. And the temple area complex, it also boasted the employment of over a thousand priests and priestesses, primarily for the purpose of cultic prostitution. Like, Emperor worship, occultic practices, and the great temple of Artemis. Religion was at the heart of this thriving city. So much so to the point it it had a small river that made it a port city as well. And that river was eventually filling up with silt. They were losing their harbor. They were going to lose their ability to trade, which they eventually did. And they eventually had to move. But they held on as long as they could for the thriving business of of religion. It was such a business that if you read Acts 19, when Christianity comes to town and people quit worshiping idols, it causes a riot among the silversmiths who build statues of Artemis. They're going to lose their income. It's in that city. It's amidst all of that that this church has not grown weary. You imagine being quarantined in this environment? They had patiently endured they had heeded paul's warning you go to acts chapter 20 and paul gives a warning to the ephesian elders he says this in verse 29 i know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them therefore be on alert they heeded that call they were on alert And Christ commends them for this. This isn't a bad thing, Shades. This is a good thing. It is a good thing to hold on to what is good. To cling to the truth of the gospel. To test our teachers. To be theologically vigilant. Christ commends enduring orthodoxy. But we must also see what Ephesus missed namely that christ condemns empty orthodoxy this is number two christ condemns empty orthodoxy look at verse four but i have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first When I was in uh, ninth grade, I won the Christian Witness Award on my high school basketball team. It was a Christian school, so we had awards like that. The irony uh, is that I was going through my first bout of depression. And, and love, if, if I had any, was at an all-time low. My love for God at an all-time low. My love for others. My love for everybody but i kept doing the right things i kept saying the right things 
I was Ephesus. I looked like I deserved the Christian Witness Award. You want to see a lampstand? Ephesus, enduring orthodoxy, shining bright. They deserve the Christian Witness Award. But I and they had abandoned the love that we had at first. Ephesus is doing the right things, saying the right things, but they are not feeling the right thing. Feeling matters, shades. God is not just after your head to get you to think the right things about Him. He's after your heart. You can have all the right thoughts. No love for God in your heart. It matters not. They weren't feeling love. Love towards who? Most people take this as meaning they lost their first love of Christ, their first love of God. And I do think it means that, but does it mean more than that? Does it mean they'd lost their love toward God? Does it mean they'd lost their love toward one another? Does it mean they'd lost their love toward the, the lost world? I think the answer is yes. Because all of those loves are inseparably connected. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20 tells us that you can't love God if you hate your brothers and sisters. You can't. It actually says if anyone says that he loves God and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. Jesus tells us that in John 13, 34, that our love of one another and our witness to the world are connected. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love of God, love of one another, loving witness to the world, they are inseparably connected. And I think that Ephesus, in one way or another, had abandoned them all, have we? Shades, we may believe the right things, even do the right things, but does our heart beat with love for Jesus when we sing, when we, when we read this, this thing, this book, when we pray? We, we may be orthodox on paper, but are we loving towards one another online? How do, how do we treat each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ, on things like social media? Especially in our politically charged culture in which people often disagree in the extremes. I mean, Shades, we're a politically diverse church. Do we treat each other the same way as the rest of our politically diverse country? With vitriol and rage? Or do we show the world a different way? Amidst this pandemic, people disagree on what we should or should not be doing. We may disagree within our own body. But does the world know that we belong to Jesus by the way we love one another anyway, the way we talk to one another? I was talking with Park Stallcup this week about this, and she made a statement to me, and she goes, you know, we've got to one another well. She's referring to all of the scriptures that talk about love one another, or bear with one another, or build up one another. Just, just do a quick search for one another in your New Testament. Shades, we need to one another well. We can't say that we love God and hate one another and we can't hate one another and be a witness to the world of the love of God in the gospel 
shades. True faith is more than theological vigilance. It's not less, but it is more than theological vigilance. It is cardiological vitality. It's true faith is alive with love. Your heart beats with it. The love of Christ. This is the greatest thing we need. The love of Jesus. Well, we need orthodoxy. But the kind of orthodoxy we need is an orthodoxy that fans the flames of our love for Jesus, that feeds the fires of our love for one another, which burns bright as a witness to the world of the love of God in the gospel. This is the true call at the heart of the book of Revelation. It's not just a call to just persevere, but to persevere in the love of Jesus. It's not a call to just reject idolatry, but to reject idolatry out of superior love for Jesus. It's not just a call to to refuse to participate in the pleasures of immorality, but to find superior pleasure and joy in loving Jesus. Revelation is the call to the love of Jesus. Shades, we can believe all the right things. But unless it transforms you cardiologically, your heart, until it transforms your loves, it means nothing. 1 Corinthians 13 says it best. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong. Resounding symbol. If I have prophetic powers to understand all mysteries and, and knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Endure in orthodoxy all you want, Ephesus, but without love, your orthodoxy is empty. It's lost its purpose. The purpose of orthodoxy, right belief, is to fan the flame of love for God, which feeds the flame of love for one another, which burns bright as a witness to the world. If we are not shining forth the light of love in the gospel, then what is our lampstand even for? That's what a lampstand's for. To shine forth light. We're not shining forth the light of the love of God and the gospel. What do we need a lampstand for? That's pretty much what Jesus says in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Repent or I'll remove your lampstand. What, what What do you need it for? If you're not shining forth the light of the love of God in the gospel. This is why Jesus introduced himself to Ephesus as the one with the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the lampstand. So they might know that he is present with all power over his lampstands and if they don't shine in due time, he in his present power will remove them. They will cease to exist as a church. Does that sound harsh? I'm wondering if you're having a hard time squaring this Jesus 
with your picture of Jesus. If you are, abandon your idol you've been calling Jesus. Take this one. He's a real one. Does this sound harsh? I submit to you that this is the sound of love. Revelation 3.19, Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Those whom I love. I love my kids. I reprove my kids because I love them. I discipline them because I love them. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He's calling Christians to repent. This this is why we do a prayer of confession every Sunday. Because we're called by Christ Himself to be a people who are a people of repentance. A people who spend their lives turning from sin and self to Christ. We're a people of repentance and faith. That's the in-out breath of the Christian life. Turning from me to Jesus. Turning from me to Jesus. Inhale, exhale. Repent, faith. That's it. That's the whole deal. If anyone tries to preach to you a Christianity that is devoid of repentance, I think Ephesus would classify them as a false apostle. Christ calls us out of his love to repent. This is love. Christ loves his church too much to let her be loveless and so he speaks forth words of reproof and discipline to shake and wake her to remember repent and return did you catch those three things that he called them to in verse five he said remember remember therefore from where you have fallen remember the height of christ's love The height of Christ's love that Paul himself described to Ephesus when he wrote to them in Ephesians 3.18, praying that they would know the height of Christ's love. Remember that height, Ephesus. Remember how much you've been loved in Christ. So much that he sacrificed his life to save you from your sin, that you might enjoy him forever. There is no higher height. And Paul prayed in Ephesians 3 that you would be rooted and grounded in that high height of love. Remember and repent to repent is to turn back turn back to that height from which i have fallen turn back towards the love of of christ that won't just let me walk away but lovingly calls me to repent remember repent and return he says return how's he say return he says do the works you did at first what works are those works that are described i think by paul in ephesians chapter 4 when he says bear with one another in love Speak the truth in love. Be built up in love. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, he says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Return to the call of Paul. In the very final verse of his letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians 6 and verse 24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Ephesus, shades, return to love at the heart of every. Love at the heart of what you believe. Love at the heart of what you do. Love for God that, feeds the th- that fans the flame of love for one another, which burns bright as a light of witness to the world. This is the call of Christ.
And it is a call to empowered orthodoxy. This is the third and final thing we need to see. We've seen that Christ commends enduring orthodoxy. Christ condemns empty orthodoxy. Third and final, Christ calls us to empowered orthodoxy. I say that Christ calls us to empowered orthodoxy because as we talk this morning about orthodoxy and love, I fear that many people pit those things against one another. And they use Ephesus to prove their point, that these things are in opposition. You see, if you're like Ephesus and you're just obsessed with orthodoxy and having the right theology, you'll be loveless like Ephesus. So we don't need to get all wrapped up in orthodoxy. We just need to focus on love. But such thinking forgets that Christ begins this letter by commending enduring orthodoxy. And I think he brings that point back so that we won't make this mistake. Look at verse 6. Right after he has called Ephesus to repent and return to love, he says this, Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we'll talk about the Nicolaitans in about two weeks. All we need to know right now is that they promoted a false teaching that justified immoral living. And so, the Ephesians oppose them. They hate their works. Those are against Christ. We don't love that. We hate that. And Jesus says that's good. I hate that too. In other words, I think what Jesus is saying here is, Ephesus, I'm calling you back to the love that you have abandoned. But that does not mean abandoning orthodoxy. You, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. It's good. I'm not calling you to abandon orthodoxy in favor of love. Orthodoxy is important. It's only worthless if it's empty. No, Christ calls us to a love-filled, love-empowered orthodoxy. I say empowered because of verse 7. Look at it with me. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit. I thought that Jesus was the one speaking here, but this says that the Spirit is saying this to the churches. Jesus is the one speaking. So is the Spirit. I would argue so is the Father. God the Father. If you look back up to verse 1, you'll see the phrase, the words of, and then it goes on, the words of the one who holds in his right hand and all that. But the words of, you're going to find that phrase at the beginning of every single one of these messages to the seven churches. And the Greek underlying those words have an Old Testament parallel. You know what it is? Thus says the Lord. I think what we're getting here is the united voice of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect unity speaking their word to their church. And I think that each message specifically closes with a reference to the Spirit because we can only respond to these messages in the power that the Spirit provides. This is not Jesus calling us all to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can't do that. The Spirit's got to provide the power. The Spirit's the one speaking this to us. And I think that the Spirit provides that power through a promise. Every single one of these messages will end with the Spirit and a promise. The Spirit and a promise. Look at it here at the rest of verse 7. Here's the promise through which the Spirit will provide power. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Every message will end 
with a promise to the one who conquers. And we're going to see every last one of these promises kept by the time we get to the end of the book of Revelation in chapters 21 and 22. And just like the, the way Jesus introduces himself in each letter is specific to the application for that church, so also the promise that he chooses to close with is specifically tailored to provide the power where each church needs it. What's the promise to Ephesus? God will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, paradisio. It's a Persian word originally. It means garden. That's why we call the Garden of Eden paradise. Here's the promise. I'll grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise, the garden of God. The tree from which mankind was cut off in Genesis 3. God says, you'll get to come and eat of that with me. We come to commune with God on a weekly basis because of a tree right now. It's a foretaste of this. This tree, this tree of life, it's a symbol of eternal life, of full forever joy. Like, like sweet fruit you can pick from a tree that will fill you up and sustain you forever. That's the image here. That is meant to Give us an inkling of what it will be like to experience life with God. The sweetness of it, filling us up, giving us life, sustaining us full forever, joy, always, eternally. Is that not at the heart of what every human being searches for? The Ephesians, they lived surrounded by people obsessed with this search. People that would come into the garden of the temple of Artemis. You remember, it's surrounded by a walled garden. They would come into the garden of the temple of Artemis to worship at tree shine, shrines, but they would walk away just as empty as when they came. Criminals would flock to that temple garden. They would flock to those trees for asylum, but they would depart just as guilty as when they arrived. Artemis this goddess of fertility, this life-giving goddess. She may have promised life, but she only delivered death. But Jesus Christ calls to Ephesus and to you and to me, and he says, remember, repent, and return to the love of me. And I will not come to you in judgment to remove your lampstand. No, I will bring you to where I am, to my garden. I will bring you to my tree, and there you will be truly set free, no longer empty, but full of the fruit of joy in Jesus forever. No longer guilty because your crimes have been covered by Christ when on a tree he took death for you and for me that we might taste of the tree of life for all eternity shades let the spirit wield that promise powerfully in your life to empower true orthodoxy that endures true orthodoxy that fans the flame of love for god that feeds the fire of love for one another, which burns as, br as a bright witness to the world of the love of God in the gospel. Shades, this is the greatest thing we need. This is the true call at the heart of the book of Revelation. Let's not make the Ephesian mistake of thinking we don't need this book because we endure in orthodoxy. It may be empty. No shades, we need to hear and to heed 
the call at the heart of revelation, the call to the love of Jesus. And may, may that love make us a people of empowered orthodoxy. And to this we say, amen.